I, I couldn't imagine living anywhere else. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else now, especially even, I think London's even more chaotic and more expensive. And, you know, friends I know are moving out as well. Um, yeah, I really, I really like living here. It's, it's a really easier way of life. Welcome to episode seven of the Scottish at Heart podcast with me, Alison Fraser. This podcast is for anyone who feels Scottish at heart, regardless of where they live or ancestral claims. My guest today is Madeline Black, and as you just heard, she couldn't imagine living anywhere else but where she is now. Madeline is a professional speaker and usually speaks about sexual violence and trauma, including her own experience as a teenager. And while we touch on that subject today, we mostly chat about how she ended up living in Glasgow and the adjustments that she had to make. If you're listening to this on its release, I hope you're having a wonderful festive period and wish you a prosperous new year. You can check the show notes for links to Madeline's work, but in the meantime, fill your glass, make yourself comfy, and let's listen to Madeline now. Welcome on to Scottish at Heart, Madeline Black. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. So you are a Londoner living in Glasgow. Before we started recording, you said that you would never go back to London. So what is it about Glasgow? Yeah, I yeah, I really never thought I would do that. I moved when my daughter was just a baby, six months old, and it took me a long time to get pregnant and have babies. And I was just devastated to be wrenched away from my family at that time. And I hated my first year here. But now, as you said, I can't ever imagine living in London again. When I go back down to London, all I see is busyness and loads of traffic, loads of pollution. I see closed off people, people not really in their heart or speaking to you. And in, in Glasgow, it feels the very opposite. Everybody's very open. You know, like today, just within about half an hour, we were at the Ayrshire coast. I walked with my friend for seven and a half miles in the beautiful countryside, you know, along the beach. And yeah, it's just easier that even like, down to the way of life. School was the best. I've got three girls now. About the house I have, we could never have afforded a house in London. There's more space. And I just think people are just easier going and very, very heartfelt people, actually, really, really full of heart. There's a big distance between London and Glasgow. So, what mm. was it that led you to moving up across the border? Oh, well, I was traveling for a year in Israel and I met a Glaswegian. <laughs> so it's his fault. And when we had Anna, our first baby, there was a, a recession that was on. And he, Stephen used to work for a big um, computing company called Wang. And there were loads of redundancies. And we just used to joke that they forgot to make him redundant. But eventually he realized this might happen. And his dad has a family business and he said, oh, you can always work for me. And we just thought, well, we'll never sell the flats. We'll never, you know, they'll never find a buyer because times are really dire in London. Then. And we sold it pretty much straight away. And I couldn't believe I was so fed up. But, you know, I thought when I come here, I've got to make the best of it. You know, I can't expect people to come to me. I've got to make friends. And so because I had a little baby, it was easier. I could go to the mother and toddler groups, swimming classes or, you know, whatever it was with my, my baby. And I knew a few people already. And people are very welcoming. And if you're new, they invite you here, invite you there. And yeah, I found a really lovely group of friends, which is obviously still friendly with to this day. And um, yeah, after about a year or so, I thought, actually, you know, 
way of life here is going to be better for my children. It's it's easier and there's there's just more to offer them. I think to have a different life. The life in London is just chaotic. It's really chaotic. It's a big mini city. You know, it's going to be chaotic. And I think even now, looking at it today, to be able to afford to rent or to buy, what would my children do? It would be impossible. Really tough. So yeah, so um, that's why we moved. So I married a Glaswegian. I married a Scot, and he came here for work to work for his family business. And his dad is still working at eighty-five, and his brother is in the business as well. So it's quite unusual. It's a business that's been going for over fifty years. So it's great. It's really wow. good. Yeah. yeah, the Glaswegians are, are hardy people, are, in my experience. Yeah. Did you feel welcomed into Glasgow? Yeah, I, I think I really did. I think, you know, um, my mother-in-law showed me around and everybody, you know, people that knew of me knew that I was in town. And so, you know, people would say, you want to come around here? Or people that I knew that had a baby the same age. And yeah, people were really, really, really welcoming. Really made you feel... Um, you know, that you weren't alone. I, I struggled a little bit with the language at first because when I first went out and we were looking to buy something and we're going to all the estate agents or anywhere I went to the supermarket, everyone would say to me, we'll see you later. And I went home to Stephen and I said, I don't know, I don't remember doing it, but somehow I've invited all these people around and they're all going to see me later. And he said, no, no, that's just what we say. And we say goodbye. <laughs> so I was very confused when I first thought he was like, see you later. Oh. Okay. When am I going to see you? <laughs> so that was quite funny. Some words I still don't understand, but uh, yeah, I've got there. <laughs> are there any words now that are part of your everyday vernacular that you would never use in London? Well, well I would say see you later now, which I don't think I would ever say. Before. I don't think I really say we, um, but yeah, little words that are just, I guess, in Scottish that don't really have anywhere. Um, Oh, no, now you put me on the spot. Can I think of any? Um, you know, just little things like this. So you can have two positive words, very short words that also can be negative. So like, I write, you know, like, you know, what are you talking about? I write. So I quite like that one. That's quite nice. But I can remember when Anna, my eldest, was about two and we were in the park and she was my only head one then. And she said to me, Mum, can I have a shot on the shoot? I just looked at her and I thought, I've got no idea what you just said to me and you are my daughter. And it means, can I have a go on the slide? So having a go means having a shot. And I'd like, what? How can that mean having a go? So can I have a shot on the shoot, man? And that's what it meant. Can I have a go on the slide? So yeah, there's been some funny moments. <laughs> Do you feel that now you've been in Glasgow for so long that you are Scottish in your heart? Actually, yeah, I do. I don't know if I'll ever be a fellow Ouija, but I feel I'm a... a you know, an, an adopted Glaswegian, adopted Ouija. Yeah, I really I, I couldn't imagine living anywhere else. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else now, especially even, I think London's even more chaotic and more expensive. And, you know, friends I know are moving out as well. Um, yeah, I really, I really like living here. It's, it's a really easier way of life. So the the life that you have right now, Madeleine, is one more of a, you are a professional speaker speaking on the topic of forgiveness and sexual violence? Or? Yeah, it's exactly so. So it's about resilience and it's about forgiveness. It's about overcoming adversity. I share my own story, my own lived experience of sexual violence. Um, I was gang raped at 13. Uh, I write about it. I speak about it. I often appear on the news or the radio because they know that I'm not afraid to 
share my story and to put my face out there as well. I've done a couple of TEDx also about rape and shame and sharing our story. So I'm very passionate about sharing my story, really to help people, I guess, that haven't found their voice because I know power that comes when we share our stories. When you speak to people just in your everyday life, you know, in Scotland or even out of Scotland, it's like, what reaction do you get from those people when they learn about your backstory? Well, I think well, it's hard now because most people know my story <laughs> that they live around here. And when I, but when I literally first came out, which was nearly about nine, ten years ago now, a lot of my friends didn't know, and they didn't know how violent it was. They didn't know that I nearly lost my life, and I think they were shocked, but very, very supported. And within literally about two weeks of sharing my story, so I first shared it with an organisation called the Forgiveness Project on their website, and it kind of went a little bit viral, and. I had just so many people sharing their story. A couple of friends with me as well. For the first time, they'd never told anybody. First of all, just in this country, then kind of Europe, and then it spread all over the world. People from India and America sharing their story. Sadly, I know, you know, my story is just of many, many people. It's it's not an uncommon story. I guess what maybe is uncommon is I I am able to share my story. I'm able to speak about it because many people are just really paralyzed by their shame and they have nothing to be ashamed about but it that took me a long time to work that so I realized that the shame didn't really belong to me it always belonged to them but that's took a lot of healing I guess uh, quite a journey to get to that place yeah I guess yeah the story that you have is is that powerful one where you do show that you can that life life can carry on afterwards Absolutely. There is definitely life after any trauma, not just rape. And yeah, we need good support. We need to surround ourselves with good, positive people and to get, you know, to do the therapy, whatever that is for you. So I've done a lot of talking therapies. I've immersed myself a lot in the nature in Scotland by doing sweat lodges in forests or walking on fire or breath work. Or I now do cold swimming. I've now got a little ice tub in my back garden so I can't get to the lakes or the lochs, as we say. So yeah, nature has always been very nurturing as well, but whatever it takes for me, it was landing back in my body. And I think when we can connect into nature, especially, and I'm surrounded by amazing nature, um, you know, really helps us to, to land back in and connect. And for me, that was the, really all I needed to do was to learn to be in this moment, because in this moment, I'm okay in the present moment. I imagine there's a, a lot of support, wraparound support for people like yourself, for those survivors of you know, sexual violence, how can someone like myself, um, mm. how can I support someone like you? Yeah, I would say if somebody does share their story with you, just believe them and no judgment, just listen to them, let them say what they have to, follow their lead, don't encourage them to report or encourage them to do whatever, just really follow their lead. But, you know, just as you would a small child that was ill, you'd want to like nurture them, you know, make sure they had good food and, and also surround themselves with good people, get the right support, ask them if they know where to find it, signpost them to any organization if it gets too much for you. Because when we're too close, I think sometimes it takes a therapist, a professional or a stranger to be able to hear details. And it, you know, we need to feel to heal, really. We need to be able to connect to what's going on for years. I numbed out. I know most people, you just want to put it behind them. They don't want to remember all the details, but eventually 
we wake up to the fact that it's not going to go away unless we deal with it. So yeah, just be as supportive and as kind and as soft and as gentle as you possibly can be and a rock at the same time. How did your experience um, influence how you mothered, parented your children? Yeah, well, I, I was very scared for them. I'm also a Jewish mother, so I think we just automatically think the worst case possible. But after a while, I saw if I wasn't careful, I could project all my fears onto my children. So I was very, very scared of doing that. I wanted them to be you know, strong, fierce, independent women, which is what I've got. So you have to be careful what you ask for because they are all those things. But I just thought if I don't ever let them out or do what they want to do, then I'm holding them back and they never get streetwise and they'll never, you know, live their life properly. So I, I allowed them to go out at clubbing at 15 with their fake ID. But I always said, look, I don't care if you're drunk, if you're stuck whatever's happened just phone us whenever you're in trouble or if you ever feel scared we'll always come and get you we won't don't you and and that's what I've done so I'd like them to be as honest as possible and that's really what we've done I've spoken to them about consent I've spoken to rape and said it's your body even if you're kissing and it, it goes far down you know one way and you change your mind it's still okay to say no it doesn't matter you always you have to be in control you if you don't want to do something don't do it so, yeah, they're very aware and they knew about my story from not a little age, but from age appropriate age. They knew they knew that I had been badly hurt in my youth. So, and I suppose knowing your story, they can see that it doesn't define you. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's really what I, I wanted to show people as well when I speak, not just to raise awareness about sexual violence and to try to end the shame, the stigma, and the silence, but also I want to show people that. Actually, you could not just get past something. You can really live through it and then thrive. I think you can have post-traumatic growth as well as post-traumatic stress disorder. You can grow through what you go through. And I do believe I'm on that side now. It hasn't held me back because I refuse to be identified by what had happened. Very nearly lost my life that night. And I just thought, well, you know, I am going to live my life. I want to live my best life. I don't want to waste it because... You know, I think how long this planet is in existence, when we think how long we're here for, it feels like 10 nanoseconds, really, in comparison. So what are you going to do in that time? Are you just going to always be traumatized? Or are you going to heal, do the work and live your life? I think that's what we're really here to do. You speak about resilience too. So how, how have you been resilient in Scotland? Can you tell me about some experiences where you've had to I know, grit your teeth and just get through something. Oh, no, quite a few. So I'm thinking what instantly that comes to my mind. So in COVID times, we started to climb more of the Munros, going Munro bagging. I don't know if I'll ever get them because I'm nearly 60 now and there's about 282 and I've done about 5%. So, But you never know, you never know, never say never. And my daughter and I were climbing uh, Munro. It was called Ben Moore because we definitely got more. We all got very lost in the morning. Loads of people got lost and we couldn't see the steps to get to the top. So we all had to walk back down this road, found the steps, got to the top, and then the mist came in and sideways rain. We ate our lunch quickly and we turned around and we couldn't find the path. And we were what are we going to do? So we started walking, started walking, and we met two women earlier who'd also got lost originally. And then in the mist, they were calling us and we somehow managed to get caught on the cliff that was 
almost like, uh, you know, just straight down the way. It was so steep. It was just awful. It was pretty much vertical. And I slipped at one point and they all screamed and I was just got cooled by the one and only rock that was there. My daughter Mimi put her pole into a big hole and a massive like mountain hare jumped out and she screamed. And we thought, what are we going to do? Mimi was nearly crying at that point. She was panicking. So we decided, the four of us, that we would call Mountain Rescue because we, we, we could not see. I mean, I literally couldn't see like five feet in front of me. It was just thick, thick pea soup, as they say. And we called the Mountain Rescue and they said, we're only 300 yards east of the path. We weren't very far from the path, but we were stuck on this vertical bit. But then luckily the, the mist lifted a bit and then we could all see the road that we had got lost on earlier. And I said, look, if we slowly work our way down, we will get to that road. And then we know the way down. We agreed with the police and the Mountain Rescue that we didn't need helicoptered off because we were all like, oh, no, can you imagine the papers? Four women get lost on the hills, need a helicopter or whatever the headline would be. We just like mortified. And so we thought we'd find our way down. But what was really interesting is that Mimi was really, really panicking. She was very nervous. These other two women, one of the women was even more panicking. She was almost hysterical. She was crying a lot. She was couldn't see. And I'm one of these people that carry everything. So they had spare glove, they had hot tea, I had food, I had a jacket, I had waterproofs, I had um, you know, warm liners to put on. So we were okay in that way. But she then stopped panicking and she started focusing on this woman and she started talking to her. So I think it, it was maybe like a subconscious way of calming herself down, putting all her energy into someone else. And then she really calmed this woman down. I mean, when we got to the bottom, this woman leant down and kissed the pavement. She, I don't think she thought we were going to get off the hill. But sadly, you know, we hear people die. On mountains in Scotland, you know, people are ill-equipped or they go out in sliders and a little thin jacket and they're not aware, you know, you start in the sun, it could be snow at the tops. So now it's a bit hairy. So it taught me quite a lot. It taught me that the mountain isn't going anywhere. If the weather turns, I don't need to get to the top, you know. I've been with my husband since and we walked one Munro, climbed up maybe 95% and I said it's let's just go down. It's just too windy and we're going to get blown off the top. We had to go round a side bit to get up and we decided just to go down. So officially can't count that one. But um, yeah, it, it just taught me that you don't mess with Mother Nature. You really don't. Well, it's still going to be there next week, isn't it's it? It's not going anywhere. No, <laughs> yeah. not going anywhere. So what's the definition of a Munro? I think it has to be over a certain amount of meters and feet 3000 or 950 something like that yeah. depending which one you do it has to be a certain height so then after that then it becomes um there's different names there's like a, a marilyn there's a corbett so they go smaller and smaller after that but munro is the tallest one so we have done ben nevis which is the the tallest one in the uk and we did it in june and there was at the top and there was a little bit of myth but because of my experience i've become very aware now of watching landmarks, paying attention, rather, rather than walking and talking and not really noticing where I'm going, I have now can read a map, which I didn't really know. I used to take all photos on my phone and just, you know, you know put guidance, sort, like guide myself that way. But now I can download a map and I've got ordnance survey on my phone and I, I will look properly before I go. I've done a navigation course as well. Yeah, that taught me quite a lot. <laughs> What led you to decide that you were going to start bagging these Munros? 
Well, I think it, when it was COVID, when it was lockdown and we couldn't really do much and nobody was working and we walk anyway, I walk quite a lot, walk every day. It's just a challenge really, isn't it? And when you get to the top, it's just a beautiful day, which obviously we don't live in Scotland for the weather. The views are incredible and it's just, you can't think of anything else. You know, as I spoke about before, I needed to get back into my body when I'm climbing and walking out of breath, looking at the views experiencing all the weathers, my feet are aching. I'm in my body. I'm so present. And it, it just is very nurturing to me to be out in, the, in nature. You know, it just stills my mind. And it's just, yeah, it really does. It's medicine. It's good medicine. I've heard a lot of people talk about bagging Monroe's. So it must be mm-hmm. quite, quite, a, not a common thing, but quite a popular pastime. Yeah, I think especially in lockdown, we met lots of people that, that were walking or climbing for the first time. And then we had problems. Some of them are very limited with parking spaces. You have to park in a lay-by and people were abandoning their cars and police had to come and, you know, turf people away. So I think it was just, everybody just walked like zombies in lockdown in the UK or in Scotland. So people were just walking all over the place. So it was something different to try. If someone was coming over to Scotland and they wanted to just bag one Monroe which has been your favorite one? Oh, I don't know about favorites favorite experience well definitely not been more <laughs> otherwise oh I can't think which would be my favorite I suppose my very first one years ago was Ben Lohman so maybe my first one but it's quite a well-worn path but sometimes especially now I quite like to see people because if there's no people and then we get lost and like I do start to panic I can still feel that getting triggered from that experience with mountain rescue because I thought oh you know how can people get lost on the mountain I mean really you go up you follow a path you turn around you go down it is so incredibly easy to get lost I know now that it's yeah the weather can just switch in a second and before you know it, it's a whiteout and you can't see yeah so make sure you're uh, suitably equipped yeah don't have all the gear and no idea <laughs> And you've walked the West Highland Way too, which is a really, really popular multi-day hike. Mm-hmm. What was, was that? Quite, quite a few years ago, and I did it for charity. But I have three friends that are all sisters, and their mum died of breast cancer. And then they discovered they had the BRCA1 genes, so, which meant they were very, very likely to get cancer as well. So they all had preventative surgery. They had double mastectomy, hysterectomies. But at the time they decided to do that, the youngest one, Karen, actually developed breast cancer. So she had to wait. Didn't send both of them. My other two friends, Sue and Elaine, have got breast cancer and one's got ovarian cancer. Even though they had the operations, it shows you how virulent this BRCA1 gene is. But we had, um, the three of us were walking, or four of us, and we had, my friend lived in Mexico, Elaine, so her sister-in-law came. And her sister-in-law's boss, that she worked for a magazine at the time. At the first time I was a cover girl was on a health magazine from Mexico. It was very exciting. And then the photographer came who walked with us also from Mexico. Then we had another couple. One of them walked and one of them with one of the husbands used to feed us during the day and do massage on our feet at night. So we walked with about eight of us. And the girls had been on Scottish TV because of their story was quite unusual. And we were donated um, lots of equipment. So we all had orange jackets. We used to call ourselves Team Orange. And people along the way had seen them on the STV News and they would donate money. The first place we stayed at, it was a and b She said, I, I don't want any money. Just the money you would have paid me for the B&B tonight, just put it into your charity. So people were 
incredible because they were, you know, it was quite unusual what they had all done. And it was brilliant. I really, I loved the West Highland way. It was an amazing achievement. And because we were a group and we were very focused on what we were raising money for, it, it was just brilliant. We sang a lot as we walked. <laughs> it sounds a bit odd. We used to think of a theme and then just think of as many songs as we could to sing along that themes, musicals or flowers or girls' names. And on the last night, we had about 20 friends came down and they walked alongside us with the last leg of the wall. And uh, it must have been about 30 of us all walked into Fort William at the end. So it was very emotional as well. Yeah, what a special, special trip to be on. Yeah, it was. And we did say, that was about 20 years ago, let's do it again. Oh, yes, we'll do it again. We've never done it again. <laughs> it's, a got, got, it's got a lot more popular, West Highland Way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really want to do it. And I was thinking about doing it in, in May, but all the accommodations are already fully booked. So. Yeah. yeah, it is. So when lockdown happened as well, you know, we couldn't travel overseas. And I'm in London, I live in Scotland. So I do miss the sunshine. I do like, you know, to get some sun. Couldn't go away. So we decided to go to the Outer Hebrides. And I'd never been there before. We went to Lewis, then we went back the following. You went to Harris, even though they are, it's all one island. And that was just breathtaking the beaches the scenery hardly any people it was just so beautiful i want to go back again and we, we went to some of the other islands as well we went to sky which i've been to before we went to uist as well but just absolutely stunning it was like uh, granulated sugar on the beaches they were just gorgeous really really nice place if ever you come go to see the outer hebrides they are the the islands that are top of my wish list. I, mm. I've been to Orkney and Shetland and Skye oh, and Mull, and, but I've not yet been to Lewis. Oh, I've never been to Orkney, but I, I don't, can't compare it, but I think maybe Orkney's a bit flatter. I think the Hebrides are maybe a little bit hillier, but it, yeah, it's a little bit, imagine like some parts of New Zealand is a little bit like um, Lord of the Rings country, you know, it's really magical and mystical and yeah, really pretty, nice. If I could give you just 24 hours anywhere in Scotland, where would you spend those 24 hours? Where would I go? I don't think I'd like to go back to the Outer Hebrides. Travelling around the beaches, uh, hiking in the hills, looking for eagles in the sky, eating lovely food, maybe being in the cottage with a load of friends. Um, yeah. And you mentioned food. What... What of the Scottish fare would you like to have for those 24 hours? If you could have anything, what would you be dining oh, on? Well, I love fish. I love meat as well. And all the food is always lovely and fresh. Just good, wholesome food. I'm not so great with meaty haggis, but I'd like a vegetarian haggis, a nice veggie haggis to start, and a nice steak, maybe some nice uh, vanilla ice cream. Yeah, I think that would be good. Sounds simple yet delicious. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and would you have any Scottish music as your, you know, to have on on the background in your cottage? You know, what what oh, kind of Scottish do. music do you enjoy? So I'm very lucky. I live very near Deacon Blue, who have nearly been in existence for about 40 years, actually. And so I walk my dog in the same park as Lorraine, who also has a dog with the same name, Alfie. And she very kindly read my book for me before it was published and me an endorsement. And we were very lucky. I've seen them couple of times in massive venues. We saw them at Edinburgh Esplanade, just by the castle. And then we've seen them in the NCC. So maybe like 
15, 20,000 people. But they did a very, very local gig just by here for a cafe, the Glad Cafe, because they know the owners were raising money for the roof or something. And it was 120 people. And it was just amazing. It was just like being in their front room and they were just playing for this small select audience and managed to get tickets. So that would be pretty cool. So instead of having them on the CD, maybe you could have them live in the lounge of the cottage. Yeah, I don't know if they would do that for me, but you never know. <laughs> but that, that was really nice. It was just, yeah, that was a really good concert too. It was great. Yeah. I think they're like an unsung hero of Scottish music, you know, outside of Scotland. A lot of people have heard of, you know, like the Proclaimers and Wet, yes. Wet, Wet and Runrig, but you know, the likes of Deacon Blue, some really good, good music. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, you hear it hear them on the radio and you think, you know, all the words just come in, dignity or whatever song you know. So, yeah, they're good, uplifting songs. Yeah. Now, as a resident of Glasgow, um, if there's Mm -hmm. listeners here who are planning a trip to Scotland and they hadn't maybe thought about coming to Glasgow, why why should people come and visit and what would you recommend they see and do? Oh, it depends what they would want to do, but there's loads and loads of... um, like lovely restaurants, there's lovely museums, you can soak up the music, the theatre, just wander around the streets, see all the street festivals, all the, you know, the street entertainers. Uh, yeah, just be entertained by the people. <laughs> there's lot, lots to see and do here. It's a good kind of lively place, lots of, lots of stuff always going on. I'd never been to Glasgow until May this year when I did okay. a day trip. A day trip. I was in I was in Scotland for a week. I was going making my way to Sky to go and mm-hmm. see Pete and Diesel concert I went to. Um mm-hmm. but I was in Edinburgh and I thought, oh I'll do a I'll go take the train to to Glasgow because I different from Edinburgh. Yeah, it is. I I really wanted to go to Loop and Scoop, the okay. gelato place. Mm-hmm. And yes. um I wanted to go to the piping center to buy okay. myself my own chanter because I was using one from my my band. And then a friend of mine, she's from Glasgow, and she said, oh, you must go to the Botanic Gardens. Yeah, they're lovely as well in the West End. And, yeah, so I just did those three things, and it was, I absolutely was blown away by Glasgow. And I Yeah, really so where you were in the Botanical Gardens is like the West End, so there's lots of students, but, it's, you know, you just look up as well, look at all the buildings and, and go to the beautiful parks. So we are known as the Deer Green City. We've got loads and loads of parks. In lockdown, again, it was brilliant. I could walk to Pollock Estate and I'd see a, a Highland cow every day in my lockdown. So that always made me smile. And I could walk to Queen's Park. I could walk to Muir End. You know, there was just, I lived within about 15, 20 minutes to massive parks. We could walk across all the golf courses, see all the deer. So it was great. There's loads of parks. Yeah, it does sound like it's a really nice place to live. And yeah, very different to Edinburgh, but special in its yeah. own way. Different people, different buildings, different energy, very different. But Edinburgh's very as well. Edinburgh's got good stuff. We're not, we won't make this a competition. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. We go to Edinburgh. We're not anti-Edinburgh. <laughs> the festival is brilliant. The ability to go to Edinburgh Festival is fabulous. Yeah. Um, I have a, a final question for you, Madeline, about your children being born to an, an English mother from London. Yes. With a Scottish dad. Yes. Who do they support when it comes to sport? Oh, Arsenal. They're all London. They've got and They're watching the Arsenal game as we speak, actually. <laughs> but do they, go, do they go Team England or Team Scotland? Oh, well, that would be very different. I think some would be 
one one or two were one side, one or two would be the other side. But yeah, but football, they, they still support a London team. Sounds quite funny. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I've really enjoyed talking about Glasgow and learning more about you and your life and and how you spend your days. Oh, you're welcome. It's great chatting to you. And I'll put uh, links to the show notes of where people can find you. Um, is there anything that special going on that we should know about? No, I would just say see you later. Thank you so much to Madeline for sharing your stories. I've been looking more into walking the West Highland Way since our chat and also Monroe bagging. So I've got some new goals that I'd love to achieve in the future. Join me next week for another conversation about being Scottish at heart. You've just listened to Scottish at Heart. For more Caledonian connections, join our Patreon. The link is in the show notes. You'll get bonus content plus a members-only space to strengthen your Scottish ties. You can also make our day by leaving a five-star review. See you next time.